Beautiful. You may take your seats now. Um, so yeah, now we're at the main sermon of the the day, uh, brought to us by Deacon Jan Kowalchuk, and the title is Israel and the Church, and it's part three. Deacon Jan. Good afternoon, everyone. It's nice to see you again. Hopefully, you all have a great week. I had a wonderful time last week being in Toronto. It was so nice to see the brethren and enjoy the time together. Now, I want to continue my part three, and who remembers part one? That's right. It just happened so many weeks ago. So let's have a quick review. What is the proper relationship between Israel and the church? So historically, as I mentioned, there have been two major theories or two main interpretations regarding the relationship between church and Israel. So we talk in my first presentation, we spent a lot of time, we talk about the replacement theology. Remember that now? Replacement theology. And the second part, we talk about the separation theology. So what's the replacement theology? Basically, that's what the name says. The church basically replaced Israel, and Israel has no redemptive future. The covenants and promises that were given to Israel are just transferred to the church. As far as Israel, there's no such thing as, there might be people who might claim the name Israel, but as far as God is concerned, they just don't exist. And Jews must convert to Gentile Christianity in order to be saved. That would be just a quick summary what this theory, I wouldn't even call it a theology, it's all about. And we talk a lot why this theology is very difficult to accept, especially if you start to study your Bible. Why is theology so difficult to accept? And remember, with so much time we spent talking about how the doctrine leads towards the behavior, how the good doctrine leads to a good behavior, and a bad doctrine leads to a bad behavior. So if you just study history, if you go back over the history, over the centuries, and you would study, you will see how this doctrine influenced the Christian's behavior. What I'm talking about, remember from the first part, they will give you some quotes from the church fathers, the words that they actually put into writings about the Jews, how they felt about them, right? That was the first rise of anti-Semitism in the church. I'm talking about the 2nd century, 3rd century, and 4th century. I talk about a little bit, uh, briefly, I talk about the, the father of the Reformation. Remember that? The, the Luther, right? And what he wrote at the beginning of Reformation, what he wrote about the Jews, and towards the end of Reformation, or towards the end of his life, how he switched his mind, how he starts to hate the Jewish people because he thought that they would convert to Christianity, to his theology, and they didn't, so he just hated them. And moving on to the 20th century, he was a great spiritual father to the name as Adolf Hitler, who would quote in his book and his speeches how the spiritual father influenced his life, and he was the one, he was at the top of the government that proposed that we call the final solution. Remember, you know what I'm talking about, the final solution? He was trying to eliminate the Jews from this planet. 
So just by studying the influence of the doctrine in our behavior, we can tell a lot if the doctrine is correct or the doctrine is wrong. Doesn't even, doesn't even have to go into the Bible just to analyze it verse by verse. And other point, biblically speaking, why we need to refute this doctrine, as I mentioned to you, let's just refresh. Go to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, and we went through some of the, we actually went to many scriptures in Genesis, but we started right here in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, and in verse 2, in verse 2, here is the, first, here is the covenant that God made, the words that God spoke to Abram. In verse 2, he says, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless, bless you and of course him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And repeatedly, through the book of Genesis, God is repeating the same word. He says, I will make an everlasting covenant. Everlasting covenant. What is that supposed to mean? So we talk at the end that if God cannot perform what he promised here to Abraham, what he promised to David, what he promised to Moses, why should we have faith in God like that? If God is able to replace these people with somebody, with other peoples, that what is our assurance that, let's say, God cannot replace us, as we call ourselves Christians, and replace us, let's say, with the Muslims? Where is the guarantee? Which is basically, don't have it. But we do have guarantee when it comes to the Bible. When God speaks something, we can be assured that this thing is true. So, as you can see, the replacement theology is a very dangerous and a false doctrine that has consistently led to anti-Semitism and false interpretations of the scriptures. Because how are we going to interpret so many prophecies from Isaiah, from Ezekiel, from Jeremiah, from minor prophets, from the Torah? How are we going to, you need to allegorize them or you need to switch something, you need to interpret it in a different way to justify your point. And that's what the first father of the church tried to do it. And over the centuries, that's the buildup. And I also mention you, this is the prevail view in all the Christian churches today. Prevail view, what I'm talking about. Majority of churches adopted the replacement theology. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And I give you some, I give you the list of some of the major organizations that adopted this, this doctrine, right? Now, let's move on. So we, now we refresh some memory, right? We can see, we can remember what was the separation theology all about, right? Let's move on. The second one, the second part was the separation theology. So replacement is done when we're talking about separation. So some people came to the conclusion that this separation theology is totally wrong. We need to make a little bit adjustments here. So they come to the conclusion that, you know, we need to separate these two. So we call it a dispensation. So what is the separation theology? It's basically that it just says that there is a future for Israel and there is a future for the church. And this, this, these two organizations, there's two entities. They have their own way in the Bible and they never, never cross each way. There are scriptures that are prophecies that are for Israel and there are scriptures that are prophecies that are for church. Two different entities, two different futures for these two different entities. So the covenants and the promises to Israel are not transferred to the church. 
So they acknowledge that. The prophecy that the, the covenants that were made, that God is still going to be faithful and somehow, in some way, he's going to fulfill it. And they said the church is a new spiritual entity with a distinct purpose and a distinct destiny. That's why we call a separation. There is a separation. There is Israel on one hand, and there is a church on the other hand. And some major objection to this theology as you study the Bible. And let me allow you, I'm going to spend a little bit more time here in the Bible trying to object to this theology because we are more closely associated to the second group of people. And we borrow a lot of their beliefs into our system of beliefs. So let me allow a little bit extra time to spend here trying to talk why this theology or why this theory is also not acceptable. So why is this theology very dangerous? Point number one, false distinctions between the ethnic Israel and the church. I said false distinction between ethnic Israel and the church. Because you see, if you start to separate these two, there is Israel, there is the church, you basically have three distinct groups in the Bible. What I'm talking about. There are Jews, there are Gentiles, and there is a church. And as you read in the Bible, you can try to find this distinction in the Bible if you can. If you can. There is either Jews and the Gentiles, there is either Israel as the Gentile, or Israel and the nations. There is no such a distinction in the Bible. There is the church people, there is the Israel, and there is the Gentiles. There's no such a distinction. Now, let's go some scriptures quickly here. Book of Acts chapter 13 and verse 46. Book of Acts chapter 13 and verse 46. Just breaking into the context here, just two verses. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. So who is the you first? We're talking about the Jews. But since you reject it and judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. So basically, I can give you a tons of scriptures in the Bible that will say there are distinctions between these two people, not three people, right? Let me give you one from Isaiah 49 too. So we're going to move across the New Testament and, and the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 5. Isaiah 49, verse 5. And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant? To bring Jacob back to him. Who is Jacob? Obviously Israel, right? To bring Jacob back to him. So that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord. And my God shall be my strength. Indeed he says. It is too small a thing. That you should be, should be my servant. To raise up the tribe of Jacob. And to restore the, the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentile. That you should be my salvations to the ends of the earth. How many group of people you can see in these two verses? Israel and Gentiles. There is no third group of people. And the same thing is the New Testament. There's no division to three different categories of people. The church, the Israel, and the Gentile. Now, another objection here. 
if you believe in separationist theology, that the question would natural question would come up: What happened to the Jews who convert to Christianity? What happened to the Jews who convert to Christianity? If we buy into this separation theology, are they Jews or are they Christians? Are they both? Because now it's a clear separation, right? We're going to come a little point by point a little bit later. Who are these people? Where do they belong now? Where do they belong? Book of Acts chapter 25, verse 7. Book of, Book of Acts chapter 25, verse 7. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, look the way what he said. He said, neither against the law of Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. If, if Paul, who was Paul? Was Paul a Jew or was Paul a Christian? Because obviously if Paul was a Christian, then there was no need for him to keep the Torah. But he's saying in his speech here that he's guiltless when it comes to anything. He says, I broke no any I, I broke no rules when it comes to the elders, to the traditions of my men, or to the Torah, I have no broken any rules whatsoever. Another point, another disagreement with this theory. If you believe in a separation theology, then if you are on the separation part, if you church, then it's total disregard for the Old Testament law. Why? Since you are a new entity, since you are separated from the root of Israel, then you abide by the New Testament law. That's what they say. So why should I honor the Old Testament? Why should I care? Yes, they do bother, they do read about it, they try, they try to look at the prophecies that are there for Israel, but this, that's, that, that, that's what it is. So Churi is the glorious entity, is the spiritual entity, and Israel is the physical entity. Physical, Israel will receive the physical blessings. Church, on the other hand, will receive all the spiritual blessings. Now, if we just keep going and going and analyze this doctrine, all these questions will come up along the way. Another point. If there is such a division, if there is such a separation, so there obviously must be a different program of salvations for different groups. And that's why some proponents of this theology, separation theology, they come to conclusion that the Jews, they don't need to come and accept Jesus Christ as the Savior. Because they will be saved by their own law, by the law of the Old Testament. And this is just heresy. No matter how you look at this, this is just basically not acceptable. It just violates every single thing that is written in this book that we call the Bible. And I can give you a verse here, Book of Acts chapter 4. Book of Acts chapter 4 and verse 11. And here in verse 11 is very clear in verse 12. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And pay attention to verse 12. This is in the New Testament, not in the Old Testament. 
nor is there salvation in any, in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. How can you justify that the Jews can be saved by the Old Testament alone? How can you justify that? It's impossible. At the time, when the New Testament was actually thriving, the New Testament church, so to speak, when thriving, they did not have the New Testament canon. They were all preaching from the so-called the Old Testament. And they were fine with that. So there was no division, the Old Testament, the New Testament. The Old Testament church and the New Testament church. And distinction and separations between two of them. And the last point. Find me anywhere in the Bible, in the prophets, whether the major prophets or the minor prophets, that God made a specific prophecy regarding the Gentiles. That God would say in the Bible that there's going to be a day that I will make a covenant with the Gentiles. And this is the covenant and how it's going to look like. Show me any script in the Bible where something like that is present. Nowhere. The only thing we can find about the new covenant is Jeremiah 31, 31, you don't need 13. You don't need to go there. But it says, I will make a new covenant with who? With the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Doesn't mention Gentiles at all. Now, Israel. Let's just review some other stuff, some definitions here. As we move along, there'll be no confusion here. Israel can mean several things, right? Remember? I gave you in part one and part two, right, the definition. Israel is a nation whose citizens are physical descendants of Jacob. That could be the one definition of Israel. All the physical descendants of Jacob, we can say, are Israelites. Second, Israel includes those who are believing Israelites and includes those who are unbelieving Israelites. So there are believing Israelites and unbelieving Israelites. We have to make sure because the Bible is clear. I'll go to some of the scriptures a little bit later. Third, also very important, we need to remember that not every Israelite is a Jew, but every Jew is an Israelite. And many people miss that. We also give a definition of church. What is the church? Church basically is the assembly of called out people that form the spiritual body of Jesus Christ. And these people can be anybody, whether Jew or Israelite or a Gentile. So now, we know what is the replacement theology. We have some idea what is the separation theology, the big question. The big question. Why all these people? Why all these people want either to replace or separate the national Israel with the church? Why? Why there is such a need to make this separation or replacement? I think the answer is obvious, it's simple. 
We all want to be special people. And we hate and we are jealous when somebody else is that favorite group and not us. So because we are jealous, we said, God is not fair. So we need to find a way how to justify our system of beliefs that are going to fit into our understanding why we are a special group of people. Why all these people want to do something like replace or to separate. Why? I'm talking about very intelligent people. Brilliant minds who spend all their lifetime trying to get a title in front of their names. And they come with conclusions like that. See? Let me tell you. I told you why. The big, the big reasons. Now let's go through the details now. You know, first problem. When people talk about Israel, the church, the first thing that comes to mind, when people think about church, you ask people, they equate church. When you ask people what is church, they equate church. Church means Gentile. You notice that? Right away when you say about church, they say church is the Gentile. Church equals Gentile. They forgot. They forgot that when you read the book of Acts, especially the book of Acts, that there were many Jews and there were many Gentiles worshiping together. And there was no separation between Jews and between the Gentiles. Right? Well, that's what people think today. They think church, Gentile. Israel, Jews. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And Paul here, breaking into the context. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4. By which when you read, you may understand my knowledge, Paul's knowledge, in the mystery of Christ. What is this mystery? Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. What is the mystery? Verse 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, of the same body, not separate body or distinct body, of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Is there any complicated thing here to understand? Is there any separation that Paul is writing? There is a special blessings for the church and there are special blessings for the national Israel, all the physical Israel. Do you see anything like that here? No, we don't. The second problem. People equate Israel with the Jews, as I mentioned. 
They don't see distinction, but it's huge distinctions in the Old Testament. There are prophecies for the Israelites. There are prophecies for the Jews. There are different prophecies for the house of Judah than prophecies for the house of Jacob. And we need to pay attention to which one is to which to understand what the prophecy is all about. But people mixed it up for some reason. You know, there are huge prophecies in Ezekiel. when You know, God is saying that at the end, he's going to make these two nations one again. And it was God who actually separated these two nations apart. So there is all the reasons behind it. If you don't know what we're reading, we're not clear about the definitions who is who, then it's easy. It's easy to go and put our own interpretations into the biblical text. And since we're Ephesians, let me give you scriptures here. Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11. Therefore remember that you, once Gentile in the flesh, who are called are are circumcision, but what is called the circumcision is made in the many made in the hands, by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the what? From the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. In the world. Yes. I am one of that person. I am a Gentile. And no matter what I believe. No matter what I want my opinion was. I was in this category of people. Without any hope whatsoever. But now. Through Jesus Christ. I am part of the commonwealth. Of Israel. Skip down to. Here to verse 19. And now. Because of Jesus Christ, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There is no division. We all come together now. Having been built on the foundations of the apostle and prophet, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We'll come back to this verse a little bit later again. Gentile believers become a commonwealth of Israel. Through Jesus Christ. It's not the other way around. And can be the other way around. The another problem, the third problem, people don't bother to make the distinctions between the national, the physical Israel and the remnant of Israel, the believing Israel. And the Bible does. There are people, there are Israelites who have faith, who are believers, and there are Israelites who don't believe. Let me give you an example. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Verse 6. Romans chapter 9 verse 6. But it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac you shall be called. And skip to verse 27 just here for, for the sake of time. And verse 27. 
Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. And he says, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sin of the sea, and here is the clue, the remnant, the believing one, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut, and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And this is quote again from Isaiah that we already studied. And let's give me another example. Romans 11. Romans 11, verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? And Paul answered, certainly not. But I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and turned down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. By what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. There are unbelieving Israelites and a believing Israelites. The believing Israelites are called the remnant of the left. And these people believe. So we need to keep this thing in mind as we study, as we're reading, as we're studying the scripture. Because that's where we, 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 can, we can be quickly confused what the scripture is speaking, what the scripture is addressing. So the question now. Being a physical, being a physical descendant of Abraham, does it bring any value? Not a trick question. Because the Bible answered it here. Being a physical descendant of Abraham, does it bring an advantage in any way or shape? Absolutely. Look at Romans chapter 3 here. Romans chapter 3. And verse 1. Romans chapter 3 verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of the circumcision? Much in every way. And chiefly, there are many, many reasons, but chiefly, because to them was committed the oracles of God. And that's what we have in our hands today. That we call the Hebrew Bible. Even the New Testament was written by the Jews. So that's the main reason why there is an advantage. Being a physical descendant of Abraham. But being a physical descendant. It doesn't mean that automatically we become a spiritual descendant. Let me give you an example. Romans chapter 2 here. Again, Paul's writing. Romans chapter 2, verse 28. And look what Paul is saying here, writing to the Romans. Chapter 2, verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that, that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit 
not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. There is a distinction, again, between the physical national Israel and the spiritual, the believing Israel. And to this point, if you go to me with the Gospel of John, you will see this in action. You will see this in play when Jews try to, in their conversation with Christ, they try to claim how important they are because they are the physical descendant of Abraham. So here in John chapter 8, and in verse 39, so there's a discussion. You don't, have to, you don't have time to go through all this dialogue here. But in 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. You see, I'm a special here because I can trace my lineage all the way to the Abraham. He says, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the words of Abraham. What did he do? He had faith. He had unbelievable faith in God. If you were his children, you should have the same faith, but you don't. And look what Christ responds to him. But I will go to the book of, we'll go to the Matthew. We'll see the better response here. Matthew chapter 3, quickly here. Matthew chapter 3, verse 9. Matthew chapter 3 at verse 9. Christ says to, to them, do, And do not think to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. Because just we have the physical lineage to Abraham. For I say to you, that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Faith. Faith and obedience is way more important than just have a physical descent from somebody. So not all descendants from Israel are Israel. And Paul clarified that as we read it, right? person can be part of national Israel. A person can be part of physical Israel and not be part of the remnant of Israel or the believer of Israel. And we need to understand that, to understand the entire book of the Romans, all this dialogue that's going on, especially the chapters 9, 10, and 11. If you don't make this distinction, we'll be confused. And that's why people who like to proclaim this, either replacement theology or the separations theology, they don't spend much time in the book of Romans. It's just too complicated. It just doesn't make any sense. So now, let's move on. Let's go to Romans chapter 11. I'm going to spend some time here in this verses. Romans chapter 11. Verse 16, and we're going to go all the way to 26. Let's just read the first few verses then, and we'll try to redefine some of the terms here. So we're going to be all on the same page. Romans 11 and verse verse 16. Just a few verses, and make sure that we understand all these terms here mentioned here. Verse 16. For if the first fruit is holy, the lamp is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree or sprout, were grafted in among them, and with them become a partake of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Let's stop here. We're going to read a little bit later. 
Who is, who is the first fruit? Who is the first fruit? Who is the root? We need to define it. Some people, you read in the commentary, some people which write this Abraham. Some people say this God the Father. Who is the root here? Who is, what, what root are we talking about? Who is the first fruit? Who is that root? And that's easy to answer, right? Remember not so long ago when I talk about here in the word of exhortation, I talk about the, the Hebrew word Netzer. Remember that thing? Let's go and review it. Hold your place in Romans chapter 11. We'll come back. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 here. Who is that root? Who is the first fruit? So Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. And a branch. And this word branch is the Hebrew word Natser. Which in some New Testament was incorrectly translated because so close to being correct, Nazarene. But this branch, Natser, shall grow out of, this, out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and mind. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Who is that root? Jesus Christ. You're right. And Isaiah chapter 53, again. Isaiah chapter 53. Verse 2, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. Who is that root? Jesus Christ. can be any other than Jesus Christ. Go back to Romans. Hold your place in Romans chapter 11. But I'm going to give you one more scriptures here. Hold your place in Romans 11. Go back to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse, four, verse 1. Am I going too fast? Romans 9, verse 1. What shall we say then? No, that's a wrong verse. Romans 9, verse 1. I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also being my witness in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and continual grief. In my heart. For, for I could wish. That I myself were accursed from Christ. For my brethren. My countrymen. According to the flesh. Who are Israelites. To whom pertain the adoptions. The glory. The covenants. The giving of the law. The service of God. And promises. Verse 5. Of whom are the fathers. And from whom. According to the flesh. Christ came. Whose overall eternally blessed God. Another connection here. All these prophetical connections, everything leads to where? To Jesus Christ. Can be any other route than Jesus Christ. You have to make, make it clear that we're on the same page. Other, otherwise, the stuff that we're going to read here will not going to make any sense. Romans 11. So we talk about the first fruit, we talk about the root, Jesus Christ. Who are the natural branches there? The natural branches are the, the believing Israelites. The remnant of Israel who have faith. Who will never ever, have never ever be cut out. They are still attached strongly to the core of the tree. That's the natural branches. 
Who is the wild olive tree? All the white olive shot, shoot. Who, who is that? This refers to a Gentile. Not just to a Gentile. To a Gentile who respond to God's calling. You have faith. Is that clear? I know it's a simple stuff. But so many people make a simple mistake as they overread all these things. Olive tree. As you look at this analogy here, the symbolism, olive tree, non-believing Jews are not part of this olive tree here. They were cut out. They have been broken off. The national, the physical Israel cannot be viewed here as the olive tree. Let's read it again. Romans 11, verse 16. For if the first fruits, if the Christ is holy, the lamp is also holy. If Christ, the root, is holy, so are the branches, the natural branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, the unbelieving ones, and you, being a wild olive tree, Gentiles with faith, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Now, just by reading just a few verses, and if I try to reconcile either the replacement theology or the separations theology, these verses just don't make sense. You see what we're reading here? No one is replacing anybody. We're still attached to the same tree. The root is the same. There's no different root. There's no different books. There's no different covenant. Everything stayed the same. Let's keep reading. And as the results of it, because we hate, we jealous when other people are special, more special than we are, right? What happened to Christianity over the time? This is this verse. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You see all these people are doing? What are they doing? They are boasting. I am a great man. I'm a Christian. These people have no faith. You know, these people are totally useless to God. But I'm a special man. You know, because I have such a strong faith, God didn't have any choice. He had to just put me in. He had to graft me in. That's how people look at this thing. Which is total nonsense. Which is total nonsense. that people believe. Right? Let's, let's keep reading. But the root supports you. Who supports you? You supporting the root or the root is supporting you? Where the commencement? Where the, where the guidance are coming? You giving the guidance to the root or the root is giving the guidance to you? How does it work? What's the proper way? How it's supposed to work? You see how all this doesn't just doesn't make any sense? Uh, oh, yeah, you will say, yeah, absolutely, you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. You see, I had this faith, these people did it. So God didn't have any choice. If these people didn't have faith and I have this faith, God had to put me in there. And Paul says, well, well said. Because, if look what he says, because of unbelief, they were broken off. 
Because of unbelief they were broken off. And you, you're so special. You stand by faith. But do not be haughty. But be fearful. Really? Why should I be fearful? I meant. Why should I be fearful? Of what? Verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, wow, the natural branches, God did not spare them, he may not spare you either. If the natural branches had a hard time to fit in, the natural branches, you who are grafted in, that's even worse. Watch out. Be patient. Therefore, verse 22. Consider. Consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, the branches that were cut off, severity, but towards you, you are grafted in all goodness. But, there is a condition. What is that condition? If you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, otherwise, you also will be cut off. It was so easy for God to cut the natural branches. Would God have any issues to cut the unnatural branches from the tree? But wait a minute. But we are so special, right? We are so special. We have, you know, we have such a faith that all the Jews just failed. You know, we as a people are so much better. You know, we Christianity, Christians, we are so much better than the Jews. Really? Really? Look at our history. How much better we are. Not better at all. As I mentioned here a few times, I would say, we are even worse than they were. Look what we've done with the law of God. Look what we've done with the grace of God. We destroy it. We destroy it totally. We destroy it completely. Now let's keep reading. Verse 23. And they also, the natural branches, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them, graft, graft them in again. God is expert in those things. He can make impossible possible. That's why he's God. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to the nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. And that's exactly the same thing what Pastor Agent was speaking last week here. This mystery about the relationship between Israel and the church. What's the mystery? You should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness, in part, has happened to Israel 
until the fullness of the Gentile has come in. Verse 26. What does it say in verse 26? I know there is a great controversy here. What the verse 26 is supposed to mean? What does it say? And so all Israel will be saved and is written. What is that supposed to mean, all Israel? Some part of Israel says all Israel will be saved. So the question is, you know I am here? You know I even speak here to you today. Thanks to God that he blinded these people and opened the door for me to a Gentile to be part of this covenant. But you know, the time is coming when this door is going to be shut. Because God eventually is going to say, I have enough numbers of Gentiles here. Enough. He's going to shut the door and says, no more. No more. Do you realize how blessed I am? How blessed you are? God did all of this. Not because I am so special. Not because I am such a great looking guy. Not because I have such a wonderful accent when I speak. God did this because that's exactly go back what he promised in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. I will bless you, Abraham, individually. I will bless Israel as a nation that's going to come through you. And through all of you, the whole Gentiles will be blessed. And because I accept the calling, you know what? I can call myself elect. What a privilege. What a privilege. And we can choose ourselves. We can make a proclamation that say, hey, we are in Burlington. We are a special group of people. We can do that. Oh, I mean, we can do. Physically, we can do whatever we want, right? But only God's got this calling, and only God can do these things. He can call people that he says, this is my people, and he can say whose people are not his. He can do all of this thing. He's God. And he decided from the beginning who is, what part of group was his special group of people. And no one, no one can change that and no one will ever change that. Because otherwise, God will be found a liar. And all this prophecy will never ever come true. All right. Now, let's go, let's read some verses here. In verse 11 now. Just go back a little bit here. Further. Romans chapter 11, verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? You know, the replacement theology people say, they're doomed. They're done. Forget it. Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them... To jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Again, God works in a marvelous ways. He's using their unbeliefs to bring the Gentiles in and provoke them at the same time to jealousy and bring the Gentiles into his covenant at the same time. This is brilliant. Who would ever thought something like that? Who would ever thought of something like that? Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the word, right? Because, hey, look, most of the time we think church is Gentile, right? Church is Gentile. 
For if that fall is riches for the world, because most of the church is Gentile. And we have this blessing. And their failure reaches for the Gentile. How much more their fullness? What is that supposed to mean? Again, study the prophets. Study the Isaiah. You'll see what's going to happen there at the end of time. God's name will be glorified through who? Through Israel. For I speak to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if they're being cast away, is the reconciliations of the world. Think about this now. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Think about it. It's going to be a time. They're going to worship God. With us. The same group. There will be no separation or replacement. At all. So now. I'll give you all this information. A lot of information. How are we handling it? Is it okay? You can see where I'm going with all of these things? You, you sure? If you have any questions. If you have any doubts. Please write it down. I'll have a chance to talk a little bit later. But now. Is there a third option? But I'm leading into it. If a replacement theology doesn't make any sense, if a separation theology doesn't make any sense, is there another option? What about the remnant theology? Does that make sense? The remnant theology. What would be the remnant theology? How would you define it? The Gentile church partakes of the covenants and promises by being grafted in into the covenant. That makes sense? Absolutely. Gentile Christians must identify with the remnant of Israel and as they identify with the remnant of Israel, they also become the elect. I think that would make a lot of sense. It's not the other way around it. See, replacement theology teaches now that the Jews might come out and join the Gentile Christians in order to be saved. They need to come out. They need to forsake everything. If there are Torah observant people, they need to quit everything and come into the Gentile Christianity. No. We need to forsake whatever we were doing as a Gentile. And you, we need to come into the covenant of Israel. It's the other way around. We need to observe God's law. We need to observe His holiness. We need to be dedicated observants of God's law. Not try to justify every single thing. Done away, done away, done away, done away. The other question. If you're a faithful student of the Bible, if you call yourself a disciple of Christ, 
I challenge everybody who's listening here today or listening online. Find me a scripture. Find me a time in the scripture that you can tell this is the scripture, this is a time that replacement took place. This is a scripture, this is a time that separation took place. Please find me in the scripture. If that's what you believe. Find me a scripture, find me a passage that you say, listen, that was that was going from up here to this point, now from this point, this is the church. Find me. That you can lead me to the scripture, that you can justify what you believe. Please, I would like to know. Maybe I'm wrong. In what? Four weeks. We'll be celebrating the Feast of Pentecost. And you'll probably hear it this year. You'll probably hear it this year. That maybe some of the speakers will come up and say, you know what? This is the birthday of the church. This is serious. Because I've heard many times before in the past. Oh, this is the birthday of the church. If this is the birthday of the church, please show me exactly where, where do you find it. Where do you find it in the script that it says, this is the birthday of the church. Please find it. Show me. Do we realize what we're saying? Having getting up to speak and we say, this is the birthday of the church, we either support replacement or separation. There's one or the other. This is how much we are influenced by the outside thinking, the filters that we have it in our mind, we can't even see the difference. We can't even think to absorb it. Show me a scripture that will point to a replacement, a scripture that will point to a separation between these things. Show me. When did the replacement or separation take place? Did it happen on the Feast of Pentecost? But some people say, no, it happened exactly, it happened at the cross. There were things different before the cross and things are different after the cross. Yeah, show me. Show me. Show me any scripture that would justify that. The word was different before the cross. Now suddenly at this time, boom, there is a total difference now. Show me that. Or if you believe that was the Feast of Pentecost, now suddenly, that was whatever, that was happening right there. That was the time of the Israel. Boom. This is the time of the church. There's the separation time. Show me. Let's get some facts straight here. The first followers of Jesus Christ, who were they? They were Jews. Were they Torah observant Jews? Absolutely. The first converts to the apostle, who were these people? Jews. Right? Well, what would they call themselves? Would they call themselves, hey, I'm Christian now. That's what they would say? The Peter sermon on the day on Pentecost, okay? That's when some people say, this is the first day of the church. This is the time of separation, okay? Peter's sermons on the day of Pentecost was entirely Jewish. 
When you read how many quotes from the prophets he gave at this day, it's unbelievable. Gentile would not have even clue what he's saying about, what he's talking about. How many people were saved on the day? 3,000. 3,000. When you go back to the Old Testament, to the Exodus time, when God revealed his, his, his law to them, how many people were killed? 3,000. Because they rebelled against him. 3,000 people killed. 3,000 people saved. All of them. Who are they? Israelites. Now, we can go on. Most of the converts, when they were meeting, when they were meeting, they were meeting in the temple, right? Hold on. Were Gentiles allowed to come to the temple at that time? Were Gentiles allowed to come to the temple? No. How would they come to hear the messages that Peter was preaching? I'm not saying that was legal. That was illegal because there is no reason in the Torah that says that the Gentiles are not allowed to come to worship. But as the law, the Jews actually make it up. So they were not allowed to come to hear these messages on Pentecost and stuff like that. Let's hear, just go to Book of Acts quickly here, chapter 5. And verse 20. Book of Acts chapter 5. And actually starts from 17. Then the high priest rose up. And all, and all those who were with him. Which is the sect of Sadducees. And they were filled with indignation. And laid out their hands on the apostles. And put them in, in the common prison. But at night. An angel of the Lord. Opened the prison doors. And brought them out and said. And look what he said in verse 20. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the Gentiles all over the temple there. That's what it says there. No, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. But I thought the separation happened on the day of Pentecost, right? There is a message the Spirit is saying to the Peter now. Hey, you were disobedient, so now it's going to split. We're going to separate. You're just going to go one way, and we, believing Christians, we're going to go all the other way. Is that the message of the Feast of Pentecost? Uh, just book of Acts chapter 21 here, quickly. Book of Acts chapter 21. Verse 20. Book of Acts chapter 21, verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and do what? And they are all zealous for the law. Wow. We're talking about decades that this thing was written. And there are still people who have zealous for the law. But I thought the separations happened already. You don't need to keep the law. Oh, we just abide by the New Testament law. The Old Testament law is for the Jews. Or maybe, no, we replace the Jews. We replace the Israelites. We're Christians now. We don't need to do all this stuff. What is it? Show me a scripture. Clear scripture. Or a paragraph. Or a chapter that says, hey, this is the perfect separation. There's a perfect split. There's a perfect replacement that is taking place right now. Where is it? See, you can't find it. What happened on the day of Pentecost? What happened there? 
Is that the day of separation? Is that the day of the verdict of the church? Another fulfillment. Another fulfillment that God promised to who? To the Israelites' prophets in the Old Testament that he's going to send his Holy Spirit. That's it. It says nothing about Thursday of the church. If you find something like that, that you're reading into the text because it's not there. On the first Pentecost, God gave the law. On the other Pentecost, he gives his Holy Spirit. That's it. Another fulfillment. And yet there will be either another fulfillment of the Feast of Pentecost. It's not over yet. Like just was one Passover, there was a second Passover, and there will be the third Passover. Even greater. It just goes, the circle is going bigger and bigger. God fulfills each of each day on its appointed time. So now, Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to, I'll finish quickly here. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. And look here. Paul, Paul is writing to the Gentile Christians. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. For when the fullness of the time had come, specific time, appointed time, to the day, to the hour, when the fullness of the day had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, is a physical birth, born under the law, what law are we talking? The Romans law or the Greek law? What law are we talking about? Who was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we may re- that we may receive the adoption as son. That's the whole point. And keep reading. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out what? Abba, Father. That's what the Feast of Pentecost is all about. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. If a son, then an heir of God through Christ. That's all. That's the fulfillment. It has nothing to do with the separation. It has nothing to do with replacement. It's just another fulfillment that we can trust God. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. And now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundations of the apostle and prophet, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Let's go quickly to Revelation chapter 21. And we'll finish right there. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Look at verse 12. New Jerusalem coming down. Verse 12. Also she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. And the names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Everything comes together now. One big, huge, wonderful, beautiful picture. Skip to verse 14. And on the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. What's the foundations of the New Jerusalem? Exactly what we read in Ephesians. What is it? 
the foundations of apostles and the prophets. I don't see separation. I don't see replacement. I see continuity. From the beginning to the end, there is one specific plan of God that runs from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. And there is no confusion, and it shouldn't be any confusion, even though this whole subject, the relations between Israel and the church, is just blown out of proportion. So I need to finish here. I'm going way over my time. Let me ask you some questions that I asked you at the beginning of my two other presentations. Let me ask you this question. And you see, if all this knowledge that you now have, it will be able, it will be able to answer all these questions. What is your understanding of the role and purpose of the church? What is your understanding? Not what some other people understanding. What is your understanding of the role and the purpose of the church? What is your understanding of the role and purpose of Israel? What is the difference between Israel and church? Is there any? You need to answer it. Did church replace Israel? Is church part of Israel? In the end, you need to answer this big question. What is the proper relationship between Israel and the church? May God bless you all.